As we then turn our attention to the Word of God this morning, we'll be looking at a passage found in the Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 4. You can find this in your pew Bible if you're using that on page 1,345. As we continue seeking to expound this epistle, uh, section by section, this morning we come to the section that includes verses 7 through 16 of chapter 4, a sizable section, and so, of course, we're not going to be able to exhaustively expound uh, every phrase uh, nor every truth that is revealed within this section, but we'll attempt by God's uh, aid to look at verses 7 through 16 of Ephesians 4 uh, this morning, and we read there as follows. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Thus far again for this morning, our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been said that when you consider a chain, that the chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And the idea is that all of the other links in a chain uh, maybe of a solid steel, maybe in good condition, but the purpose of a chain, uh, that of attaching two things together and moving them, depends upon the strength of the very weakest link. Because if just one link in the chain fails, well, then the entire chain fails. And then the purpose of the chain also fails. This principle, I believe, can also be illustrated in reference to our human bodies. Now, boys and girls, I hope that you are all feeling well this morning, uh, that you're healthy, that you're not sick, but sometimes we do get sick. Sometimes we get sick with the flu, and maybe you've had the flu. I hope that you don't have it now, and I hope that you don't have it uh, in the weeks that come but maybe you've had the flu in the past, and maybe your mom asks you, and she says, well, where does it hurt? And maybe it's been a bad case of the flu, and you say, it hurts everywhere. Everywhere. That's because the body, our human body, is one. Oh, it's made up of different parts, of course. Our hand is in our foot. 
Our eye isn't our ear, but when our body is sick, although that sickness may be confined to one part of our body, like our stomach, it affects the entirety of our body. And this principle has a spiritual application in regards to the church. The church that is the gathered body of believers. The church that is a number of individual persons who have experienced and who are experiencing the grace of Jesus Christ within their souls, calling them out of the darkness of the fallen mass of humanity, calling them together as a collective body, joining them together with the one head of the church, Jesus Christ. This collective body is one but made up of many members. And the many members have a purpose, have a purpose to glorify God, especially by conducting themselves appropriately as the church, as the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's ultimately the the topic of the epistle to the Ephesians. The Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians a general epistle. There was not a certain pressing specific problem in the church of Ephesus. There was not some um, heretical teacher that was infiltrating uh, the church in Ephesus. There was not uh, some glaring evidence of a lack of unity. But nevertheless, the church in Ephesus was part of the militant church And so Paul sends a general epistle of encouragement and direction that they might know, to borrow the words of the epistle to Timothy, how to conduct themselves as the household of God. And as the household of God, the church ought to be characterized by unity, by a oneness. We looked at this Uh, two weeks ago in connection with preparation for the Lord's Supper, the importance of unity. We would just underline that unity is important. Unity is important because it is a powerful testimony to the world. And so Jesus Christ prayed that the church would be one so that the world would see evidence and receive testimony that the Father and the Son, along of course with the Spirit, are one. It's also important that the church have a certain measure of unity for the well-being of all of the members. We could say it this way, that there is a spiritual environment that is conducive for maturity when there is unity. We think of the Psalm 133, talking about the unity being compared to the dew upon the Mount Hermon, watering the valleys, giving a nourishing life. And so it is in the church that is experiencing spiritual unity. Such unity is conducive to spiritual maturity. And so to encourage us in the necessary but at times difficult pursuit of unity, the Apostle Paul continues in verses 7 through 16 by identifying what we've given as our theme, the gifts for the unity of the church. The gifts for the unity of the church. And as we unfold that theme this morning, we'll look first of all at the source of the gifts, and then secondly, the description of the gifts, and then thirdly, the purpose of the gifts. So the source, the description, 
and the purpose of the gifts. But as we begin embarking upon this journey this morning, looking at this passage, we, we need to be convinced by the Word and by the Spirit of the necessity and of the importance and of the desirability of unity, because I'm afraid that some of us, to speak bluntly, have given up. I've given up on the concept of unity. Some of us, perhaps, because of the experiences throughout our ecclesiastical life, have come to accept the norm of thinking that the church is a body that will always lack unity. Maybe it is because we have come to understand the distinctives between denominations and federations. Maybe it is because we grew up uh, listening to our fathers and our grandfathers and maybe even our grand, great-grandfathers uh, discuss and debate and argue about divisions in the church. Maybe it is that we have just received this, this sort of Hatfield and McCoy type of animosity uh, towards other people within the church. And so, practically speaking, we have given up on the desirability of unity. And we just think, well, the church... The church is a place in which there are factions. Well, sadly, that is often true, but that is not the way that the Lord desires it to be. And so with open Bibles and with open hearts, we need to ask ourselves, does Christ, does the Holy Spirit desire unity in the church? And I believe with all of my heart that if we honestly go to Scripture and read it with humility, that the answer that we give has to be yes. He does desire unity. And because Christ desires unity, He has given and He continues to give gifts, spiritual gifts, to the members who make up the church, that they would then employ these gifts, these talents, these opportunities for service to foster, to maintain, and to increase the expressions of the oneness in the faith. And this is, first of all, then the source of the gifts, verse 7 through 10. And again, we reiterate that there are numerous phrases that you could spend uh, quite a length of time on. But if you look at verses 7 through 10, just glance there, you'll notice repeatedly uh, the pronoun he referring to Christ. And, and this is the source of these gifts, Christ, Jesus Christ, his person and his work. His person as an ascended redeemer and his work of bestowing, of pouring out a redemptive grace. And just notice here again the, the Christological focus of the church is not initially focused upon oneself disunity, I would plead with you, oftentimes is a result of being absorbed with ourselves. How many factions in the churches have begun with, I want? But Paul focuses upon He, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the head of the church. And with pastoral love, I would ask you, as I ask myself, is our focus upon ourselves or upon the head of the church, Jesus, the Christ, the one and only Redeemer, who has accomplished the work of redemption, 
And quoting from Psalm 68, the Apostle Paul uh, alludes to or references the work of Jesus Christ, especially as we have come to understand his work of humiliation, descending down through the incarnation, through his sufferings, through his death, through his burial, through his descent into hell. And not only his steps of humiliation, but also then his steps of exaltation. He has ascended into heaven. And we understand this to include all of the steps of his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven and his current ruling, reigning, being seated at the right hand of the Father. And through these steps of humiliation and exaltation, the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished the work of redemption, including the obtaining of grace. And grace is not simply some abstract concept, some theological term uh, that we quibble with and that we debate about, but grace is a transformative spiritual power that flows out of the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ through the life-giving Spirit. You see, the danger is that we think of grace and we think immediately of polemical debates between various groups within the history of the church. And yes, there have been and there had to be debates about the nature of grace, but in our debating about the nature of grace, we need to make sure that we don't lose an understanding of grace as a transformative power that changes people from the inside out, that changes people's souls, hearts, minds, wills, and affections. And the Lord Jesus Christ, as the head of the church and the accomplishment of redemption, pours out, you notice verse 7, to each one of us, to each one of us, every single true living member of the church is the recipient of divine grace. But notice that while there is this universal aspect of the distribution of grace to the members of the church, don't misunderstand, I'm not talking about a universal application indiscriminately of grace to all persons. We're talking about within the true living members of the church. Each one of us here this morning, and not only here, but wherever the true church is gathered together, each member of the true church has received grace. But notice that Christ is sovereign in the allotment of that grace. And so verse 7 also states, according to the measure of Christ's gift. And Christ is sovereign. To use the parable of the talents, some perhaps received ten talents. Some perhaps received five talents. Not all persons have the same role within the living organism of the church. Not all persons have the same gifts. The Apostle Paul elaborates on this elsewhere. Uh, For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, and he uses the comparison to the human body. Not all of the parts of the body are an eye. There are also ears, and there is a mouth. Not all of the parts are a hand. Not all of the parts of the human body have the same function uh, of the hand. And I know sometimes, perhaps, 
You know, rather than using your hand to open a door, you might use your foot to open a door. But boys and girls, you know if you do that too often, your mom will correct you. She'll say, you don't open doors with your foot. You use your hand. You don't read with your ear. You use your eyes. And so in the body of the church, Christ has been pleased in his sovereignty and in his wisdom to give to the various members, yes, all of them receive grace, but various measures of that grace and various provisions of that grace. And it's only when we understand that with humility that perhaps my brother and sister has received a different spiritual allotment of grace and different gifts and different capabilities. It's only when we understand that diversity, even within unity, that then we can come to appreciate the organic nature of the church. And so the Apostle Paul continues, and he begins to describe to some extent these gifts that we want to look at in our second point underneath these two categories, the gift of equipping officers and then the gift of ministering saints. And, and here we're using verses 11 and also verse 12. You notice he himself in verse 11 referring to the redemptive Jesus Christ He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So we put that underneath the subheading, the gift that Jesus Christ gives by his grace of office bearers whose primary purpose is to serve Jesus Christ by the equipping of the saints. And then we've given another subsection, the gift of ministering saints. Now notice verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. But first of all, in our subpoint, the gift of equipping officers. Jesus Christ, as the head of the church, has been and is, <clears throat> and we pray that he will continue to give to his church men who are called to special offices, special positions of responsibility to serve the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul mentions apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And we follow most commentators in seeing a distinction within this list of what we call extraordinary or temporary offices, which would include apostles, prophets, and evangelists, and then the continuing offices in this regards of pastors and teachers. An apostle was a man who had been directly called by the Lord Jesus Christ, who had with his own eyes seen the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, and who had received the gift of grace that enabled that man to perform miraculous works. Now we believe that the office of the apostle has ceased to function, that there are no longer apostles. And the same for prophets in the sense in which it is used here. A prophet in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, a prophet was, again, a man who was called by God and was enabled by the gift of grace that that man had received to foretell with certainty events in the future based on a direct revelation given by the Holy Spirit. And we believe that since we have the fullness of the revelation that God wanted us to receive regarding the way of salvation in the canonical scriptures, that the office of prophet, as is used here, has ceased. Now, an evangelist was a person uh, who was not an apostle, 
and yet neither was uh, he an elder uh, or uh, a pastor. He was an individual, you can think perhaps of Stephen, who had received an extra measure of grace that enabled him uh, to engage in the work of the ministry by making again known the mysteries of the Word of God. And an evangelist seemed to co-labor underneath the oversight of the apostles. But we believe also, uh, based upon good evidence, uh, that the office of evangelist is a temporary office that no longer exists within the church. We do not find, for example, in the epistles of Paul uh, directed to the churches, for example, to Philippi, we do not find the inclusion of evangelists in the opening expression uh, to the bishops and to the deacons. And so when you look at the entirety of the New Testament, uh, it is apparent that the continuing special offices include elders and deacons, and within the office of elder, there was a distinction that gradually arose between those who primarily focused upon the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God, and those who primarily focused upon the governing of the local congregation. And these individuals are put in place so that they, through their labors, might equip, notice verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. And this word is a rich word. It literally means to put in order. It could even be used in a military context of a commanding officer through training putting his unit of military into preparation for advancing in battle. Now, I've never had uh, the privileged opportunity to serve in the armed forces, uh, but some of you have, and and you no doubt can recount stories of of boot camp or of training, uh, of drills. And the commanding officer uh, equips those in his company with exactly what they need to do if they are called upon to go forth in battle. And this is something of the word that Paul uses. So the purpose of the officers of the church, of elders and of deacons, is to set things in order and to prepare the members of the congregation for service. And I really believe that this will be transformative if we as a church, but especially as office bearers, step back for a moment and realize that this is our principal purpose. And that this would be a paradigm, so to speak, of evaluating our activities as a corporate body. Is this activity conducive to equipping the saints for the work of Christian service? And so that any suggestion that comes up well, you know, we ought to do this or we ought to do that. One of the criteria could be, is this going to be suitable? Is this going to be advantageous to equip the members of the church for their work of ministry? Is this going to give them training? Is this going to give them a biblical knowledge and the doctrine and the life of the Christian faith? Now, of course, uh, as office bearers, and I speak here specifically to those who are and who in the future will be elders and deacons, uh, along with ministers of the Word and of the sacrament, are we aware that this is 
the reason for our existence as office bearers. That we might equip the saints. That we might humbly serve Christ by setting things in order within the local congregation so that the local congregation as a body may minister to itself, bringing about the increasing spiritual health that the head of the church desires. We could ask ourselves this question, do we as office bearers strive to equip the members of the church to serve? Because that is the ultimate duty, but I would say it this way also, opportunity of the Christian church member. And so the Apostle Paul moves on, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Just a a quick word, saints here is not some elite class within the church who have somehow uh, obtained some super spiritual status. Saint simply means holy one. It refers to the reality of a person who has been redeemed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you are a living member of the church, if you are one who is exercising faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You are a holy one. By virtue of justification and sanctification, you have been called. You have been called to a specific task. And one aspect of that specific task is that you have been called to minister, to serve. I just want to pause and acknowledge that for many a person in our day, this is a foreign concept because we gradually have, so to speak, adopted a consumer mentality when it comes to participation in church. What do I mean by consumer mentality? By and large, many, many a person has this perspective in regards to their church membership what do I get out of it? What do I personally receive as a benefit? This is the mentality we have, is it not, when we perhaps do our trading throughout the week. We go to a place, uh, perhaps a store. Uh, We go to Fairway or to Hy-Vee, depending where your preference is or what side of town you live at. And you go in to Fairway or to Hy-Vee, And I I don't think that most of us go in there and start unboxing boxes and stocking shelves. We go there and we take things off the shelf. And we put them in our cart and we go and we purchase them. And that's the extent of our involvement at Fairway or at Hy-Vee. Unless, of course, you are employed there. But sadly, that mentality infects many a person when they come to church, as the saying goes. They come in and perhaps they take their seat and they begin to look around. Well, what can I take? What can I get? And the danger with the consumer mentality is that if a certain person does not receive that which they think they need to receive or that which they deserve to receive, then instead of going to Hy-Vee, they go to Fairway. Or instead of going to this co-op, they go to that co-op. Instead of going to this implement dealer, they go to that implement dealer. 
And so I just simply ask you with pastoral love again, when you come into the assembly of the church, do you come thinking what you can get? Or do you come thinking, what can I give? Now, I readily understand that this is countercultural. I simply ask, do you believe that this is biblical? In light of verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. If you are a saint, you have a work to do. The work of ministry, the work of service. Now, this does not in any way imply that we do not desire to receive something in our life among the church, but it is simply to identify this. We will receive the most when we understand that we are called to give. It's more blessed to give than to receive, and part of the blessing is is that when you give, then you receive. And that's why, generally speaking, the individual who gives very, very, very little by way of ministering service to the corporate body of the church will be the person who complains about not receiving much of anything. Because of an attitude, because of a posture, because of a position. You want to truly receive blessings? Come with the attitude that you want to serve your fellow brothers and sisters in the church. The equipping of the saints for the work of ministry so that there might be a maturity. Hastening on into our third point, the purpose of these gifts. The purpose of these gifts. And here we drop down uh, to verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, the body, the church, may grow up in all things. May grow up. Oh, boys and girls, again, did your mom or your dad ever say to you, grow up? I remember sometimes my parents would say that to me, and they said it, and they had a good reason to say it. When we were being overly childish, immature, they'd say, now grow up. Or another phrase that we often heard, act your age, act your age. And that's the idea that the Apostle Paul is giving. That when the church, when the members of the church, when the saints minister to one another with the variety of gifts of Christian service, that this will produce a maturing process within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. A maturing process in the faith. Notice uh, verse 13 uh, and verse 14 speaks about the truth uh, and the truth in context to these strange winds of doctrine uh, that continually blow throughout the churches. And I would also say that those who come with the attitude of not so much what can I do, but what can I get from the church are those most susceptible to falling to the deceptive winds of strange doctrine. But I just want to highlight this fact that there is a necessity for continual maturity in the life of the Christian and in the life of the Christian church. A growth in unity and in maturity. Disunity 
often goes along with a sense of arrival. When a person, and this is true in a variety of illustrations within life, but when a person begins to believe that they have attained perfection, that's when they are most susceptible to disunity. You can see this, for example, on a sports team. If you take one player on a sports team who thinks that he or she has arrived at the very pinnacle of perfection in their game, so to speak, I can guarantee you that that person will not be a very helpful teammate. The same is true in the life of the church. If you take a person who thinks that they have attained perfection, or that they alone have the greatest understanding of the Scriptures or of theology or of the governing of the church, I can guarantee you that that person will not be that helpful in the pursuit of unity. And if you take a local congregation, if you take a denomination or a federation of churches that believes that they have attained the pinnacle of theological precision and perfection, I can guarantee you that that church or denomination or federation will have very little interest in the pursuit of unity. Because when a person has this conception of themselves, they look down upon everyone else. And they become overly critical of everyone else. And so in a subtle but yet direct way, the Apostle Paul is pointing out to the Ephesian church and to you and to me that there is still a need for ongoing maturity, for ongoing spiritual growth. And in order to obtain that spiritual growth, we need one another. We need one another to be fully engaged in humility in the work of the ministry. And and if we grasp this more and more, this will really revolutionize life in the church. If, If we understand when we come into this assembly that I need you and you need me, and I'm not referring to me as the pastor or the minister of the Word and sacrament, but I'm thinking of looking down the pew or behind you or in front of you. Look at that person, and if you begin to think, you know what, I need him or I need her to minister to me, and I need to minister to them using whatever spiritual gifts the Lord has granted to me. I'm not going to just come into the assembly of the church as a living organism with the mentality of what can I get? You know, grab off the the spiritual shelves, uh, the items that I need for my week, and then quickly get out into the parking lot as fast as I can. And I'm using the analogy of how I go to the grocery store. Grab the items we need on the list. Let's get in. Let's get out. Throw them in the back and get home. But that cannot be, congregation, the attitude we have towards life in the church. Rather, we come in, or we ought to come in, humbly acknowledging the Lord has called me to be a saint, and He has given me His grace, and by that grace I have certain gifts 
that my brothers and sisters need. And I have need of their gifts. And prayerfully, we will all use our gifts in obedience to the head of the church to cause a maturity in the Christian life. May it be so in this congregation. By God's grace, amen. Our Heavenly Father, what a wonder that Jesus Christ descended and then ascended and then poured out by the work of the Holy Spirit uh, the grace that he had obtained for us. Uh, Father, we confess that we have not used our gifts as greatly, as faithfully, as fervently as we could have or as we should have. But we pray that you would continue to give us grace, also enabling us and convincing us and persuading us uh, to rid ourselves of a consumer mentality when it comes to life in the church, but to motivate us to active, humble participation as a body of believers, so that your name might be honored and glorified, and that our souls might be nourished and fed, that we might all continue on maturing in the faith. For Jesus' sake, amen.